Friends, colleagues, and the computationally minded, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today, uh, we're delighted to be joined by a prolific author and scientist, a researcher whose work focuses on using mathematical and computational tools to study human cognition, and seeks to understand how to describe processes of thinking and learning in mathematical terms, the professor of psychology and computer science, director of the Computational Cognitive Science Lab at Princeton University, Dr. Tom Griffiths. Welcome to the program. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm, I'm very happy that I got got that in there am i missing anything with that intro <laughs> that that sounded great yeah <laughs> oh, well, this is the first time for everything i suppose um tom uh you know i, I kind of gave a quick answer there to to kind of what where we're going today in terms of some of the stuff that you work on but if you were to give an elevator pitch to somebody you know that 30 second kind of blurb what would what would your take on it be now that you've heard mine okay <laughs> <laughs> So what I'm interested in is understanding the mathematical principles behind human cognition. And you can kind of think about that like just as a physicist wants to understand the mathematical principles that explain how the physical world works, what I want to do is understand the mathematical principles that help us understand how our internal mental world works. When we're talking about mathematical models of how our brain works, what, you know, I think people automatically assume, you know, a lot of formulas and stuff. Is that really what we're getting at with that? Uh, so most of the work that we do is definitely involving formulas and, and, and doing math, but uh, also programming. Uh, so, you know, it, it's one thing to say, here's the, here's the equation that I think describes how the mind works, but then turning that into something that's really a, a model that we can use to generate predictions about human behavior requires doing some programming and, and sort of, you know, making something that allows you to generate the predictions that that formula gives you. Uh, and then running experiments where we compare the predictions that come out of those models against human behavior and see how well that works. And so the whole thing is kind of a, a, a loop where we come up with some ideas about what we think the right mathematical ideas might be. We then use those to generate models that predict behavior. We test it against behavior. And then we come back and we say, well, were we right or wrong about that? Maybe we need to go back and adjust our original assumptions and then do the whole thing again. Right. Really interesting. So, so. Tom, you're telling me that as humans, our brains aren't already functioning as, as computers do? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think it sort of depends what you mean by a computer, right? So right. if you mean by a computer, the device that you have on your desk that is, you know, crunching zeros and ones, then no, it's, it's not really working in the same way as that. Um, right. the, at a more abstract level, though, the way that I and, and my my colleagues and collaborators approach the the problem of understanding human cognition is very much in the terms that maybe a, a computer scientist would think about the world, which is what we want to understand is what are the computational problems that human minds have to solve? And then by thinking about what the solutions to those problems look like, that are the solutions that might be used in artificial intelligence or machine learning or statistics or all of these fields that are trying to solve interesting, complex computational problems. When we look at the solutions that those fields have found, how much insight do those give us into human behavior? And then maybe what can we learn from people that makes those solutions even better? And so what kind of computational problems are you interested in? Because there's so many things that we do on a daily basis that require us to think about and compute things, right? It's not just, we're not just talking about mathematics here, like calculating like the, what multiplication is, right? Yeah, so most of the work that I do is on what we call inductive problems. And so inductive problems are problems where 
the data that you have is not sufficient to specify what the answer is. And so that's quite different from the kinds of things that you might think about, you know, kind of your, your classic idea of what a math problem is like or what a, a problem is that a computer would solve. In a, in a kind of classic problem of that kind, what are, what are called deductive problems, you have all the information that you need to solve the problem. So when you get a problem like two plus two equals four, right? Or two, you know, just two plus two, and you have to say, what's the answer for, right? Or you get like some, <laughs> <Hopefully>. um, yeah, <laughs> you get a, a logic problem where you're told these things are true. Now, what else might be true? Or if you're trying to do something like, you know, figure out what the, the best chess move is in, the, in a game of chess, those problems are all instances of this kind of deductive problem structure where you've got all the information that you need in order to solve the problem. Right. Inductive problems, on the other hand, are things where you don't have all the information. So like, you know, to use another arithmetic example, if I told you uh, X plus Y equals four, now tell me what X and Y are. Mm -hmm. You don't have the information that you need to solve that. And you can kind of say, well, I have some ideas, but right. you know, it might be that, you know, X is two and Y is two is more likely, or maybe X is one, Y is three. It's unlikely you'll say X is pi and, and Y is four minus pi. But those are the kinds of problems that human minds face all the time. So if you are trying to interpret a visual scene, right? You see some stuff around you in the world. Well, that information from the world is coming in and hitting your retina and making a two-dimensional image on your retina from which you're reconstructing what that three-dimensional scene around you is. So you've lost information in that transmission process. You don't have all the information you need to reconstruct the world. And nonetheless, you're doing the best you can to, to, to come up with an interpretation of what it is. Or mm -hmm. even just, you know, learning is an example of an inductive problem where you're given some examples of say what a word might mean. And then you have to extend those examples to figure out what other things that word might mean. Nobody comes and tells you the exact definition of a word. In fact, you know, some people think there aren't any definitions of the words that we use. Uh, but nonetheless, you're able to make reasonable generalizations. And so those are the kinds of problems that, that I mostly want to understand. Right. I feel like I've, I've heard of examples like that used in kind of things like uh, developmental psychology where they're like, this is a gorbel <laughs> and like they show a picture of a gorbel and then they like show a picture of something similar to that. And they're like, is this a gorbel? Is that kind of like this, this idea that you're getting at? Yeah. So that, that's, you know, word learning is a classic example of an inductive problem. You don't have all the information that you need to know what a gorbel is. But somehow you're trying to figure out like what that is based on the information that you've been provided. And yeah. a lot of the things that are hard for computers, but easy for people, the things that we want our computers to be able to do, but that humans are still the best examples we have of systems that can do those things are instances of these kinds of inductive problems, right? So we just talked about learning aspects of language, vision, other complex sensory things, um, figuring out causal relationships in the world, doing science, right? All of those are engaging with this challenge of you're going to get some limited data and then you have to make the, the most of the, those data. And that's the kind of problem that humans excel at. Okay. So why is it that humans excel at that and computers don't? So one way of thinking about it is that um, if if you if you kind of work the math and you say what do you need in order to be good at solving inductive problems what you find out is that uh, if you want to do a, a good job of solving these problems with limited amounts of data then you need to bring a lot to the the problem you as the the, the agent that's making the inference have to have a lot of knowledge about how the world works or knowledge about similar kinds of things what machine learning researchers call inductive bias inductive bias is anything other than the data 
that you bring to solving a problem. Uh, and so that means all of the expectations you have about how the world works, the expectations you have about how language works if you're trying to learn a word, right? Uh, so you know you as a word learner have lots of experience with the kinds of things that words describe. Or even in my silly arithmetic problem, you have a lot of experience with arithmetic arithmetic problems that makes you think that the solutions for x and y are going to be things that are you know whole numbers rather than pi and you know four minus pi, and so. <laughs> Those biases are things that allow us to then take a small amount of information that's given to us and then get the most out of it in terms of being able to reach a reasonable conclusion. Right. So it's almost as though, and maybe my interpretation, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost as though computers come in with the ability to collect too much or know too much information, but not enough, not an ability to decide, you know, how much of this is really likely. So I think your point is exactly right. Like, you know, if we had, you know, two plus two is four, X and Y, then we could probably estimate that it's going to be round whole numbers, right? Um, whereas a computer would come up and generate a list of an infinite number of possible solutions to that problem, right? That's right. Yeah. So, so the human is able to narrow that down as a consequence of the experience that they have of the world. So the challenge right. for, you know, computer scientists who want to make systems that are able to do this is either be able to get more data than humans get. And that's a very popular solution to this kind of problem is um, if you want to make something that learns to produce human-like language, then if you train it on many, many, many human lifetimes of data, uh, then maybe it'll do about as well as a five-year-old, right? Um, <laughs> uh, or uh, to figure out ways of engineering human-like inductive biases into those computer systems. Um, but in order to do that, you have to have an understanding of what those human-like indu human inductive biases are. And so that's the kind of thing we study in my, my lab is trying to understand the nature of human inductive biases and then what are the, the mechanisms that make it possible for us to make these kinds of inferences. Interesting. I have a question about this human inductive bias, Tom, because the way that I'm seeing it or the way I'm hearing it from you, it kind of makes me feel like this is also kind of like an expertise that like, you could kind of link this to expertise in certain areas, certain like careers, maybe like would an individual that has more experience or what you could say, maybe inductive bias towards a certain industry, like if they had to make a decision that was uncertain, that they could pull from all their experiences and then they'd be able to make better decisions off of that is that is that a fair way of looking at inductive like bias yeah so i mean you can think about this as something that you acquire through experience uh so you know um the reason why you want a expert radiologist to look at your <laughs> uh, x-ray rather than a uh, person you find on the street is that that radiologist has a lot of experience interpreting those images and so they built up good inductive biases for solving that inductive problem of reasoning from this you know, kind of complicated image to what the underlying physical structures are. Right. Um, and so, yeah, when, when we're, when we're thinking about expertise, a, a lot of that expertise is really about developing skills for solving the unique inductive problems that turn up within a particular job. Absolutely. And, and Tom, the, uh, your example of a radiologist is I suppose, and I expect rooted in some reality, isn't there some computer software right now that's being worked on to see how well it can detect things that a radiologist might otherwise miss? Yeah, so this is a, a, a good example of the you know human inductive bias versus a lot of data trade-off that I was talking about before. So um, if you 
take machine learning systems, which are which are very good at uh, at the moment working from image data and solving these kinds of image classification problems, you can solve within some constraints some of these kinds of you know judge like is this uh, uh, an X-ray that contains something that you should be concerned about you know that sort of classification problem. Um, uh, they can they can do very well on those kinds of problems, competitive with human experts. Um, but they typically require very large amounts of data in order to be able to do that. So, you know, you need to get lots of data that's been labeled by radiologists, and then you can build your machine radiologist as a consequence of training on those data. So we're almost leveraging the uh, that bias that's already been built up in favor of producing a computer algorithm that can then do it. Yeah. So there's a uh, a sort of fundamental principle of machine learning, which is called the 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 bias variance trade off, and it's kind of about two ways that you can go wrong when you're uh, teaching something to a computer, and the two ways that you can go wrong are you can make the computer uh, too simple, or you can make the computer too complicated, <laughs> and so. Um, <laughs> So you know, it's, it's maybe that expressed at that level. It seems kind of like obvious, but but the, <laughs> the the deeper idea is that if you if you make your your computer too simple, if it's only able to express very simple kinds of hypotheses, then the way it's going to go wrong is it's not going to be able to capture whatever complexity is in the data. Um, uh, and uh, if you make it too flexible, too complex, so that it's sort of flexible in the kinds of things that it can learn, it has all sorts of complex hypotheses it can consider, then it's going to end up being very sensitive to the particular data that it sees, because it's going to try and capture whatever the trends are in those data, and those data might also contain some noise. And so when you're engineering a machine learning system, you need to think about this. It's kind of like, okay, how do I avoid making one of these mistakes in, in specifying my system? Uh, and the human solution to this problem is that you have the right kind of bias for the problem that you're solving, right? So, so you, you are we're we're engineered so that we're very compatible with the problems that we're solving. We're not considering hypotheses that are too complex. We're considering the right kinds of hypotheses for solving that problem. Uh, but there's another solution, which is that 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 problem of kind of making hypotheses that are too complex and sort of producing very variable answers based on the particular data you see that becomes much less of a problem the more data you have. And so as you increase the amount of data, you can increase the complexity of your learner, and you don't have to worry so much about having the right kind of bias for the problem because you can adapt to any particular problem. And so that's the route that a lot of recent machine learning research has taken, where what they try and do is make very flexible, very adaptable learners, and then you know give them as much data as possible so that they are able to do a good job of solving the problem, and you're you're actually trying to minimize the biases that they might be bringing to that problem because you are going to have enough data that you're going to be sort of a able to learn that even if you're a, a relatively general purpose, relatively flexible learner. Right. And so, what uh, you use radiology as one of the examples, but what are some other examples of where where we would like to have that kind of flexible learner uh, opposed to like a specialized uh, you know human with that with their biases. I think it, it really depends a lot on the nature of the problem that you're trying to solve. So uh, I think about human intelligence as really reflecting the solution to a bunch of constraints that human beings operate under, right? So we operate under constraints of we have a finite amount of data that we can experience because we die, right? <laughs> so we have a, a finite lifetime. Um, 
we have a finite amount of computation that we can use for interpreting those data because we can only use the amount of computation that's inside our heads. Uh, so you have like you know a few pounds of compute that you carry around with you. Um, <laughs> and we have... I've never heard someone call a brain <laughs> a few pounds of compute, but I like it. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. I think that might be the, the episode title right there. <laughs> uh, and the last thing is that we have limited capacity to communicate with other you know other people right so we can you know use this very imperfect route of making weird hooting noises uh which we're currently using but <laughs> that's a very bad way of me communicating to you all of the data that i've experienced or uh what the current state of my internal computations are which are the things that you would need if you wanted to potentially parallelize this computation, right? So we, we can't use the kind of standard computer scientist solution of if you're not getting enough data or enough compute at a single node, then parallelize the computation across many nodes, and that's going to allow you to solve a bigger problem. And so humans then are forced to negotiate these kinds of limitations, and, and, and human intelligence is characteristic of that, that we're kind of built to be able to learn from small amounts of data and to find efficient solutions to problems that are making the best use of the limited computational capacity that we have. And machine learning systems aren't necessarily subject to those same constraints. So there's no reason why you can't train your machine learning system on 12,000 years of speech, right? Because right. Uh, that, that doesn't take 12,000 years. Um, uh, and there's no reason why you uh, you are limited to a particular amount of compute, as long as you've got the dollars for it and you're not too worried about the environmental impact, you can use as much computation as you want to try and solve the problem that you're trying to solve. And so a lot of recent work in artificial intelligence has really demonstrated the way that deploying those resources of data and computation can allow you to discover you know, solutions to problems that maybe are not like the the human solutions, but are nonetheless pretty good solutions to the, these kinds of inductive problems. Right. And so you mentioned, I mean, this is something I've, I've heard too, just in passing from other people that are looking at machine learning, but you say it's kind of costly and there's there's environmental impact. Can you, you know, give us an idea of what it takes to compute, say like a really intensive, uh, whatever the outcome is, like whatever you're looking for, like what does it take? Like how much energy, how much resources does it take to compute these things yeah i'm not i'm not really the one to ask about that uh, <laughs> okay. but um, you just know uh, it's a lot <laughs> yeah i know it's a, yeah i mean you can like um on on you know i think and it's, it's not just a lot but it's 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 an exponentially increasing amount um okay. so uh if you look at the trend line there's a nice analysis that was done by open ai looking at the amount of compute that was going into um various breakthroughs in ai and they showed that this was exponentially increasing, um, I think doubling on the order of every three months, right? And so the amount of compute that was going into these systems was doubling at a rate that was far faster than even the, the rate at which the speed of processes increases. Um, right. And so what that reflected was just increasing resources that were being devoted to making those, those systems work. And so uh, I think as a consequence of that, you get these breakthroughs, which are kind of, in a certain sense, buying the future right where you know it's not something which is necessarily practical given the processes that we have but it's something where if you're willing to put in the resources then you're able to achieve those kinds of outcomes right. um, and but that i think creates an opportunity for thinking about 
you know, are there more human-like strategies that you might be able to find that are uh, perhaps more efficient in the amount of data that's needed or the amount of resources that's needed to, to find those solutions? Right. Like what can we kind of keep <laughs> just being with the, with the human error or with our, our own inductive uh, biases as like compared to, you know, the amount of resources that it might take to use machine learning? Is that kind of like the, pay that's like the kind of, um, not necessarily payoff, but like the, the balancing act that we have is like, when should we keep human uh, the way that the the flaws that we have with our human reasoning our inductive reasoning versus you know using all these resources that we can use but it's just wasteful at, at some point um does that is that kind of what you're kind of balancing here i think the idea would be if you could understand human learning to the point where you could say okay this is what the human biases look like and then instantiate those in a computer then the amount of data that you need to learn from would be far less mm. right yeah so you could limit the the computational uh, resources required because you can learn more efficiently, effectively. Yeah, I mean, and there's another line of work that that um, is going on in my lab, um, which is looking at uh, the other aspect of this, which is that I think as a consequence of having finite computational capacity, humans are very good at figuring out how to allocate that computation and good at coming up with kind of like simple algorithms for, for solving problems that, that, that find an interesting sweet spot in terms of the amount of computation. Um, so uh, an example of this is something like, um, say, solving a Rubik's Cube. I don't know if either of you are Rubik's Cube enthusiasts. <laughs> Never been able to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So, um, so, so the Rubik's Cube is, is a solved problem in the sense that uh, if, you, if you ask the question, what's the minimum number of moves you need to make from any configuration of the cube to a solution, that's something that we have an, an answer to. So some engineers used a really big computer and calculated this, and I think it ends up being, you know, you can get to a solution in just 20 moves from any initial configuration. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of the optimal solution to the Rubik's Cube problem found through a lot of computation. But if you look at the, the kinds of solutions that humans find, the kinds of methods that people use for solving Rubik's Cube, even you know, super expert uh, high-speed Rubik's Cube solvers, it's more like about 50 moves uh, from any configuration to a solution. Um, and maybe a little less than that if you spend a lot of time memorizing uh, moves that you can make. Right. And so, uh, but, but what's interestingly different about that human strategy is that even though it's sort of less efficient in the number of moves that you have to make, it's way more efficient to learn and describe to somebody else, right? So you can write this out on like one sheet of paper, uh, whereas the optimal solution is something that really doesn't have a lot of internal structure and you require this gi gigantic lookup table to tell you what the, the, the optimal route is from one state to another. So humans have come up with strategies for solving this problem, which involve recognizable sub goals, like you know, finish one side of the cube and then, you know, then finish the other sides and, you know, these sort of step-by-step -step process, right. things that you can sort of identify, you know where you are, things that are repeated elements, like you learn these little things that they call algorithms, which are for manipulating particular things. Like if you want to flip a corner around or exchange two corners, there are algorithms for doing that. So they have this kind of repeated structure. Uh, and and the, whole, the whole procedure is something that can be described efficiently. And so if you are a being that is constrained in the amount of computation that you can do and that needs to communicate through a low bandwidth channel with other human beings about what the solutions to those problems look like, mm -hmm. those constraints mean that you're gonna find 
good, efficient solutions to the problems that you have to solve. And that's kind of what I think human brains are really good at is finding the common structure that's shared across problems, finding the, um, the, the efficient ways of breaking those down into pieces that you can make sense of, uh, and, and constructing good strategies for using the computational resources that we have. What does what we know about computer, uh, computer AI, how is that informing now what we understand about human brains more broadly? So I, I, I think there are, there are different things that you, you, you could be asking, and maybe I'll answer a variety of different questions. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm asking at this point. I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, so I mean, a, a lot of the recent AI that I was talking about is really focused on um, using methods like what's called deep learning, which are um, kind of like artificial neural network sorts of methods. And um, those methods are interesting in a couple ways. So one is if you're someone who's really interested in neurons, you can ask questions like, are the representations that are discovered by those systems things that give us insight into the operation of real neurons? Um, one of the most productive areas for that has been looking at vision systems, uh, where you can compare neural networks for for, for vision uh, with the way that human visual cortex seems to work and, and find interesting correspondences between those. Um, so like predicting actual neural data from those kinds of models. Um, one thing that, that we've done in my lab is, is asking not necessarily about neural responses, but just conceptually, like, can we use the representations that come from those systems for predicting things like how similar will people find two images or uh, building better models of like, what are the, the, the things that people seem to pay attention to when they're trying to categorize something as a cat or a dog. Uh, so, so we can use those advances in artificial intelligence to give us representations of images that we can then use as components in more traditional kinds of psychological models of human cognition. Right. So that's, that's sort of one class of insights that comes from AI. Um, a second class of insights is less about uh, the particular mechanisms that are involved in, in human brains and human minds, but, and more about how can we use those tools to just do our science better? So if we want to do psychology with really big data sets and with naturalistic stimuli, then some of these tools for machine learning give us new methods that we can begin to use for making sense of human behavior and kind of thinking about how we would build a kind of 21st century science of the mind if we just started from scratch and said, okay, these are the tools that I have from computer science. Now I want to understand how the mind works. And that's mm. some work that we do in my lab too. Um, but I think the, 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 the other sort of argument is that um, you know, because of the things that I've been talking about, about how the kinds of problems that humans have to solve are you know, different in sort of important ways from the problems that machine learning systems have to solve, that we might expect a, a, a kind of divergence in what those solutions look like, right? And this is kind of like one way of thinking about it is, you know, if you want to understand how birds fly, then maybe looking at a Wright Brothers airplane is something that gives you some insight into how birds fly because yeah. those systems have, you know, some similarities in the problems that they're solving. But looking at a jet airplane might tell you less about how it is that birds fly, even though there are some high level mathematical principles that are in common, right? Which are, you know, they're both systems that are having to deal with these kinds of problems of aerodynamics and so on. Mm. Uh, there's a way where 
as you change the nature of the problem from I want to be able to fly and maybe I'm going to fly, you know, however many 20 miles an hour or whatever it is versus I want to be able to fly and I'm going to fly 500 miles an hour. Um, those problems have different characteristics that are the salient characteristics of those solutions. And so in the same way, when you're thinking about building a system which is going to learn from small amounts of data, which is you know humans and maybe AI systems that are focused on that kind of problem, those systems are going to look very different from systems that are going to learn from huge amounts of data. And that's kind of like the, you know, the, the kind of like Wright brothers or hang gliders, you know, versus uh, jet airplanes distinction. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, that'd be the difference if you're trying to fly like a bird that, you know, basically if you're looking at the Wright brothers or just birds in general, as your uh, induction, you'd be like, try flapping your wings or flapping your arms over putting a jet pack on you <laughs> with a jet like is, is that like because they're, you're, you're you're not getting the same information from both of these things and you're going to get very different outcomes uh and obviously improve upon those outcomes as you go uh very basic very dumbed down i think i don't even know if that actually is an appropriate way of saying it but i, I think the way i'd say it is that uh if we want to be able to get insights that we can generalize from one system to another it's going to be easier if those systems are solving the same kind of problem, right? right. And, yeah. um, and I think you can argue that there, there are differences in the, the problems that are being solved. Like this, this difference in like the amount of data you can learn from and the amount of compute you can use is a meaningful difference when you're trying to think about something like learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, uh, Tom, with this, I mean, we've, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things that, you know, the overlap that, uh, you know, machine learning and human learning has in the real world, but but I, I kind of want to get you to kind of talk about it a little bit more. What do you see as the real implications of the work that you're doing? So, I mean, a lot of the work that I do is really focused more on this this kind of like fundamental question about you know, yeah, you know, what what's the math that we should be using for making sense of human minds, and uh, that that kind of question is not something that necessarily lends itself to direct applications, but a lot of the work that we do in service of answering that question is things that then turn out to have you know interesting consequences for thinking about other kinds of problems. Um, so uh, you know, often we'll run into something where we'll say, well, humans are able to do this. We don't have a machine learning system that's able to do that. Let's understand how it is that humans do it. And then we get some insight that allows us to then think about how to extend a machine learning system or to develop a new statistical technique that allows us to, to go beyond that. Um, and some of the problems that I've worked on have, have had consequences like that, like developing systems that we can use for making sense of uh, how it is that people, um, you know, organize information in their in their heads, like like the relationships between words and the semantic relationships between things, that then have implications for developing systems that you can use to make sense of the content of documents, for example. So right. that's something where I developed algorithms that were used for. Uh, making those kinds of models something that you could scale and extend in various ways. Uh, other things I think are more direct kinds of impacts. So a lot of the work that we've been doing lately is really engaging with these questions of how is it that we can do science differently um, using kinds of tools that come from machine learning and in particular, how can we make better sense of human behavior? So uh, I, you know, one sort of caricature of the current state of research in machine learning is that we have really good models of images. We have really good models of text, but we don't necessarily have really good models of people. And mm. people are one of the things that in many ways matters the most to 
let's say a company that's trying to figure out how to best engage with its customers right. or you know if you're trying to design a health intervention where the way that people behave is going to be a necessary component of that like you could even think about like you know whether people will wear masks during the current coronavirus pandemic that that being a variable that we're able to then potentially make predictions about as a consequence of having better models of human behavior and so i think those kinds of questions are things that potentially have implications both for thinking about how to approach kind of you know our societal problems but also how to solve engineering problems of say if we're going to be developing better artificial intelligence systems making sure that those artificial intelligence systems are able to make reasonable inferences from human behavior in a way that means that they end up taking reasonable actions that are aligned with the kinds of things that humans want to happen right yeah and that's that's kind of like the I feel like we had mentioned it before, but you know when we were talking about AI, I believe in a previous episode with Pat Laflam, uh, you know, one one area that people like to talk about when it comes to AI and machine learning is uh, you know self drive self driving cars, right? So mm -hmm. I, as you say that, I'm just thinking, yes, we don't want self driving cars prioritizing. Um, you know, a deer over a, a busload of children, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, that's the main focus there is that they're making smart decisions that humans would probably make or just to save like you know just to be more protective in that way yeah i mean we've and we've actually done some work on that problem so um building uh both a machine learning system and a uh a, a psychological theory that helps us to understand what's going on in that machine learning system that that gives us better predictions for uh what people would say is a morally acceptable choice in something like a trolley car problem so these problems where you have a self-driving car that's speeding towards an intersection it's going to run into one group of people or another what do people think is the most acceptable outcome there we can actually do a, a pretty good job of predicting the choices that people make in those circumstances yeah absolutely i think that's fascinating too is that you know that obviously the goal here is to make it the most optimal and you know the most close to moral human decision making as we can as as we put our own biases into these of course um yeah. Uh, so, so Tom, this is awesome. I think uh, one thing I do want to give you kind of time to just highlight is I, I know that you uh, are working on ramping up some some publicity for your your new book that you co-wrote with uh, it's, um, Brian, uh, Brian, Christian. Brian, Brian Christian. Yeah. So the, the book is called Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. Uh, is, this, is the book a little bit more of just kind of what we've been getting into today or get, let us know what what the our listeners and maybe future readers uh, can kind of get expect when they're when they pick up your book so what the book is about is is very much this kind of idea that there are par parallels between the computational problems that humans have to solve and the things that computers do um and sort of you know articulating what these computational problems look like in in everyday life so we talk about things as mundane as you know trying to find an apartment or trying to find a parking spot or trying to decide whether you uh, ready to commit in a relationship or uh, how to organize your closet or uh, you know um, you know these these things that 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 seem like very much like human problems but are actually things that computer scientists and mathematicians have thought about solving because they're they have parallels in the kinds of problems that uh, computers face too and so uh, from it you can get advice about how to solve those problems but also some insights into exactly how it is that human minds and brains navigate the world uh and, you know with perhaps the surprising conclusion that often we do a pretty good job of solving those problems uh and in fact we're 
able to solve versions of those problems that are still a struggle for computers, precisely because our minds are good at finding, you know, these good algorithms, efficient solutions to the kinds of problems that the world poses to us. Absolutely. That's, wow. I mean, it looks it looks like a great book. I'm definitely going to pick it up. And I, I know that uh, you've been working on some projects uh, with Audible. So, I mean, tell us about that too, so that our listeners can get into that. Yeah. So it's a, a follow-up to the book with Brian. What we've been doing is thinking about how it is that this same kind of algorithmic perspective can be used, not just for understanding the computational problems that arise in individual lives, but as a way of looking at the kinds of computational problems that we solve as groups and as societies. And so the idea behind that project, uh, which I think we're still finalizing the title of, uh, is but it'll have it'll have algorithms in it. It's got to have algorithms. <laughs> yeah. the 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 idea of it is that really a, a lot of uh, human social behavior is about solving this problem of you know there's a limit to what we're able to achieve as individuals, and so if we want to be able to solve computational problems that require data or processing or you know capacities that go beyond the capacities of individuals. We need to figure out ways of pooling the resources that we have together. And so you can use that lens to look at things like companies, uh, things like you know, activism, uh, the, the, the full spectrum of cooperative, collaborative human behavior, uh, and, and ask questions about you know, what does understanding a little bit about the computational structure of distributed systems, right? the way that computer scientists parallelize computations and split them up across machines, tell us about how it is that human societies navigate these problems of, of combining our capacities together. Tom, I like that, you know, how you say, uh, you know, there's a limit to what humans can do. And I think the, the importance that you mentioned was, you know, collaboration is key for us to succeed. And I think that's, you know, as a teenager, I would have never believed you. Um, but now I'm very much aware of the fact that, yes, collaboration with humans uh, as you grow older is, you know, the key to doing anything effectively because you can't, you can only have, you only have so many resources as we talked about today. Uh, and you only have so much time, computation, and communication. And that's perfect. I think that's really uh a really good value to, to kind of take forward with this. If, I mean, if you don't even understand any of the algorithm stuff, which is completely fine, or the AI, that's kind of over your head. I think those are three things that you can kind of take away from this is that there are limits to our, our the way that humans think. Can I can I can I put a slightly more positive spin on that? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm really negative today. <laughs> yes, really, please yeah, put, yeah, a more, yeah. put a more positive spin on that, Tom. I actually like the sentiment, but I just made it sound so awful. So I would say that the limitations that you know shape who we are as humans also shape the the way that our minds work which means that human minds have got really good at negotiating those limitations and kind of coming up with good solutions for the particular kinds of computational problems that we face and so i wouldn't view them as much as you know a constraint on what we're capable of but rather something that determines what the flavor of human intelligence looks like hmm. Absolutely. now that's now that's a positive spin yeah, I like that a little bit more for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, Tom, I, I'm super appreciative of you taking the time to join us today and to share a little bit about your work. Um, it's been <laughs> really, really, really compelling, um, and I've, I've honestly just enjoyed listening. Um, yeah. So thank you so much, um, Drake. Is there anything else we want to do before we wrap up here? Yeah, last thing uh, before we wrap up, Tom, would be uh, just kind of just to pick your brain here. If are there any popular myths within your area uh, that you uh, that you are you're aware of that you kind of want to demystify? So a lot of the work that we do on 
understanding how it is that people deal with these constraints of limited computation is really trying to engage with this kind of picture of human decision-making as fundamentally flawed and irrational. So, you know, our perspective is a different one, which says that the mistakes that people make are kind of inevitable consequences of the fact that we have limited amounts of computation and mm -hmm. subject to those constraints, it actually seems like we're finding pretty good solutions. Okay, I like that. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, yeah. mistakes mistakes are bound to happen because you're always working with, you know, like you talked about these inductive reasoning, you know, you don't always have all the information, so you're you're bound to make mistakes as long as you're learning from them. That's the that's the optimal goal, right? Yeah, that we're we're solving hard problems, uh, and there are, there are no easy solutions to those, and and that's why we should expect to be making mistakes. Absolutely, yeah. No, I like that a lot. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. All right. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a couple of reviews, leave us a like, whatever it might be. Make sure to subscribe to BrainBuzz Podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Check out our email newsletter. Subscribe to it by going to brainbuzzpodcast.com, as well as following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BrainBuzzPod. All right. With that, we'll call it another episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Cheers. Cheers.